Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls, part 6 of 17 for Storm of Swords. And hello, I am Sir Buckley. As I say, welcome. You are joining me on a rather sunny English day. Storm Dennis has appeared to leave us in its wake. Maybe he will return. Thank you for the kind thoughts, by the way, of uh, people worrying from across the sea about these storms. Do not fear. I always enjoy anything called Dennis, whether it be Menace or Duffy. They're all friends of mine. Today, we will be back to five chapters of Storm of Swords, a big five chapters, very, very important. Before I get to those, minor housekeeping today, not a lot to go through. I'd just like to say a continual thank you to everyone who's still purchasing the Castles of Westeros book, people still giving it ratings, reviews. You were all very near and dear to my heart. The sales are still going strong. I think we must be closing in on three months now since release, so that's lovely. If you want to go and have a look at that, I'd always very much appreciate it. It's near and dear to my heart, even if uh, the writing is done. And yes, thank you. People keep bringing it up on the internet. The guys from Davos Fingers, they included it in their show notes the other day. People always say nice things about it, so thank you very, very much all for that. Going to be a little bit annoying now and do that kind of announcing an announcement type thing. Later this week, there'll be two announcements about the Isle of Faces and future episodes. The first one, kind of been hinted at before, if you were listening last week or possibly the week before, you might know about that. The other announcement, probably a larger one overall, I suppose. Our patrons, they already know about it, that's gone up on our Patreon page. But for the public, that'll probably be coming this week, maybe the week after. And uh, yeah, some interesting news about future developments on the Isle, so keep your eyes on the god's eye horizon please and before we get going with the main shows today i'd like to welcome a new patron lady raj mistress of horse so fantastic name first off and she has been kind enough to become a jade branch member that's an eight dollar level for our patrons so that is very very much appreciated thank you thank you thank you hope we can prove worthy of your generosity and if any of the rest of you out there interested in becoming a patron you know where to go where to have a look we are so very thankful for all our patrons and all our green folk in general. And we'd always like to hear from all of you. Anyway, get involved. We are a community-driven podcast. That leaves only one thing to do before we get to today's chapters, and that's looking at last week's Pear Pick. So for anyone unaware, Pear Pick is a weekly poll I'm putting up on Twitter about which non-POV character we would have liked most to be a POV character. We've had Gior versus Jorah. We've had Roos versus Ramsey. We had Varys versus Littlefinger, and last week we had Osha versus Gilly. And I can tell you that Osha destroyed her competition, 83.5% of the votes for people preferring to have an Osha POV throughout A Song of Ice and Fire rather than a Gilly. And let's go through a few of the comments here because we've got some loyal listeners who always like to uh, chime in on these polls, which is always very fun. And as you'd expect, most of these comments are for people picking Osha. I think 83.5, that might be our highest margin of victory. I'll have to go back and check which would be odd if you or if less people were picking Gilly than they did uh, Ramsey. You're all weird. But let's go to the comments. We have at Manners Without, that's from the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast, and they say that they have to go with Osher all the way. Gilly is great, but Osher is just too awesome, and they want to know what her and Rickon have been up to. And I think that's the main driving force behind this Osher pick, isn't it? That we need to know the mystery of where her and Rickon are. Are they in Scargus? Are they somewhere else? At Lindsay Ford, she echoes that. She says, give me Osha, Rickon and Shaggy adventuring on Skagos or give me death. So that's hard to argue with really, isn't it? Even if they're not there, where have they been going forward? Can Rickon get back to the north? Will Osha be uh, part of that? Maybe with um, Davos, I've seen that theory flown around. Taking it a slightly different direction, at Eagle Cotton Scamp. And again, 
I apologize for my pronunciations of these Twitter handles. But the message here was, it's cruel to make us choose. We got another vote for Osha though. But this time it's because we want to get her POV, not just on Rickon, but also what happened before Game of Thrones. What was her experience beyond the wall? Why did she come south? How is How can she... Um, what can she tell us about Mance? Maybe she was even witness to Mance gathering these tribes together and making his grand army. That would be very interesting. I would agree that would probably be my main motivation behind an Osha POV. We did get some other opinions though. At Faranyan, uh, again, <laughs> I apologise, says that this one is hard. While Osha is a more fun character, it would be fascinating to see the wider world through the eyes of such a naive, sheltered, ignorant character as Gilly. And, and yes, hard to argue with that. At Lucy Latino, I love them both, but I'm sure that Gilly has witnessed heavier shit. True. Very hard to argue with that. And I don't think we particularly want to go into Gilly's memories of her childhood with Craster. That would be a very hard read. No one wants that. But just to shout Gilly's corner, we might get some answers on the cold gods and how Craster interacted with them. We would have a very, very emotional scene or uh, emotional book after Gilly has had to swap her child with John to protect uh, Mance's son. And we might even have another set of eyes for Euron Greyjoy and his attack on the Reach or wherever Sam goes. So I do think Gilly's probably not gotten a fair shake here and would have a pretty interesting POV, but I do actually understand the need to find out about Rickon and what's going on in North and Osha in general. So there you go. That's 83.5 for Osha. Well done, Osha. Let's move on to the next pair pick. And this time, still got a little bit of Northern flavour. We're going with two queens, or potential queens at least. We're going Val versus Marjorie. Yes, so two beautiful women poised to kind of become queens or possibly become queens, or they are queens, depending on the, which part of the series you're looking at. So I guess for Val, we'll get yet more Mance in his past. We'll get another POV in the north, which might be useful for John's resurrection. So hmm, could see what's going on beyond the wall again. And it's just another avenue into these, into the mysteries of the north and what's going to happen there. So that would be interesting. Marjorie, she would obviously come a lot earlier in the story in Clash and Storm. We get some insight into the Tyrell hierarchy and what's going on there and the overall plans. We'll find out at least how involved Marjorie is. We'll be able to settle that argument. And we get another witness to the collapse of Cersei and King's Landing, perhaps. So, I don't know. You tell me. Would you prefer a Marjorie POV for A Song of Ice and Fire or would you like Val going forward? You'll be able to tell me later. I will put up that poll and we'll discuss it on next week's episode. So thank you for everyone who voted, everyone who commented. Please keep sharing. These is always good fun. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk again next week. But let's delay no further. We're back to five chapters this week, and they are five big chapters, especially two of them very, very, very important, so we should probably waste no more time. This week's chapters are Daenerys 2, Bran 2, Davos 3, Jon 3, and the real big one, Daenerys 3. So a double dose of Daenerys, and we're going to start with her right now with Daenerys 2. So just like that, we're in Slaver's Bay, and wouldn't you know it, a central setting for Daenerys from here into a final chapter of A Dance of Dragons, and the eventual destination for Tyrion, Barristan, Victarion, Quentin, and Jorah, again. So it's a real big mixing pot, it's a real draw, an important place for this whole story, this whole epic story. And Slaver's Bay, it's conquering, and rule will come to be the main force in Daenerys's life. It's going to earn her fame across the continent, or infamy possibly, as she turns from mere promise into a world-changing messiah-type figure. It will also be a confusing prism of problems that keeps Daenerys from her true purpose in Westeros, and it's a problem we still have no solution to in the books yet. Though we're not in Marine just yet, 
Slavers Bay as a whole is a new culture and system that must be learnt by Daenerys and the reader. Even though we have travelled together from Pentos to Vastoff Rack to Carth and will yet come to visit Bravos and Volantis, nothing on this continent will match the heights of Slavers Bay in terms of importance. It is where we see Daenerys become Daenerys, and possibly we'll see her attain her next form as well in terms of what she's going to do going forward in the Winds of Winter and beyond. So, Astapor and this chapter are merely a threshold to pass, and we'd best get to it, hadn't we? Just to keep an eye on the trends of chapters, we've already had our longest gap between Danny chapters. But in looking that up, it reminds me that somehow, we only have four more Danny chapters remaining. So Astapor, Yunkai, and all of Marine are somehow covered in five chapters. That's insane. That's Danny's entire clash arc, and how many important points really came out of that. Finding Calf and the House of Undying, and that's pretty much it. Both are far departures from Game of Thrones and Dance of Dragons, where she has a lot more chapters, but it just blows my mind how much happens to Daenerys in this book and how George expertly packages that into six, but really five, chapters. Now, as for the chapter opening, the first description we get is of red brick and the smell of brimstone. We'll come to Davos and Dragonstone later today, but that's not for another two chapters. Yet this still clearly puts us in mind of a hellish place, or somewhere not all that nice at least. And that gets backed up by the ghoulish monster statue placed in the middle of their plaza, an image of worship they've kept for over 5,000 years, despite the appearance of it. You'd think you'd find a nicer statue to look at for that long. But as important, we set this precedent of obsession with history and keeping a system going merely because it's always been there for two reasons. One, it shows just how much Daenerys is going to disrupt things and how upset everyone is going to be about it, or everyone who's not a slave anyway. Two, it shows us some interesting symbolism and foreshadowing that this is a place once conquered by dragons, and despite their clinging to the remnants of the old geese culture, that will always be true. And now comes another Valerian, and three more dragons, ready to begin conquering again in the very same place. And though this comes much later in the chapter, Danny also tells us how this very old city and its red bricks are crumbling and decaying. Let me give you two quotes here, the first. So many bricks, she thought, and so old and crumbling. Their fine red dust was everywhere, dancing down the gutters at each gust of wind. And then later we have this. Another gigantic harpy stood atop the gate, this one made of baked red clay and crumbling visibly, with no more than a stub of her scorpion's tail remaining. The chain she grasped in her clay claws was old iron, rotten with rust. So while we are yet to truly visit the three cities in the narrative, we as rereaders can see that Astapor is clearly behind the times. It's even a far stretch from the indulgence of Calf. The place is falling apart, it's crying out for change, and it simply doesn't work as a place, which we'll discuss more and more as we go here. All these signs of dust and decay mix with what Daenerys clearly notices for herself, and is also told by Sir Barry's rhyme in this chapter, that the slave system is not only tremendously harsh and monstrous, but also doesn't work all that well here. I think it's important that Daenerys comes across Astapor first, prior to Yunkai and Marine, because those later two, they seem to be a bit more put together. Their system seems to work more smoothly, and if Danny had interacted with them first, she might not have dared to believe she could ever take them on and win. As it is, she comes upon failing Astapor, where the harshness against the slaves is so obvious in the slaver's actions, and the blood of the slaves is so fast it is washed into the bricks. The signs of what she must do now are clear. We get this imagery of the red bricks again and again in every corner of the city. I think to show that slavery exists everywhere here, Astapor is slavery either as imprisonment or as a business, again telling us how disruptive Danny's actions are going to be. She's going to affect everybody here. It's not just kind of the slave quarter of this city. It's the whole place. And there's another harpy with chains and manacles. And again, not, not the most subtle of mascots, really. Incidentally, I've also liked comparing the blood red bricks of Astapor to those of the Red Keep. I like to think that that building back in King's Landing is cursed because of Maegor's crimes 
and we can easily extend that to Astapor and its crimes against humanity. And I think Aziz got to the first of my notes on Danny's language trick here, but I have a few more. And even though this comes across differently in the books to the show, obviously, it is no less brilliant. It's no less satisfying to see Krasnis knowingly make an ass of himself in front of Danny. And we also get a far better example of how smart Miss Sandy is by how she adjusts each different stream of dialogue so no one becomes offended by the other and the chance of a sale still exists. That's a lot more clearer in the books. Indeed, the only thing that annoys me about the book version is it appears it was all Jorah's idea instead of Danny's. That is annoying. I hear any kind of credit going to Sir Jorah. But most importantly, the language trick allows us and Danny to see that not only does Dastapur look horrible, it is run by absolutely horrible people. Sexist people, full of hatred and vulgarity, and they're members of a city that likes to bet on which young boy will be killed by a bear first and calls it sport. And that's all separate from the abuse Krasny shows Danny with the Unsullied. It's all just doubling down again and again how terrible this whole setup is. We speak often of how George likes to create characters with depths and with two sides to them. Not so with Krasny's. He is one of the one-dimensional, the decided the evil. And George likely paints him this way because he is destined to become the first public display of the killing power of dragons. And he really wants us to enjoy it. We are still a far cry from Hosea in Dance with Dragons and that kind of moral argument. We don't really have to argue ourselves here. Before much of Krasnitz's putridness comes on display, we learn a whole heap about the Unsullied, and crucially, how the system, economy, and production of slaves, which again is this city's main focus, is absolutely horrific. Within just a few paragraphs, we are told that the Unsullied are kidnapped as children, indeed many of them are still children now, those ones that Daenerys is looking at, they're treated to barbaric training that kills 66% of them, and that's, don't forget all the poor newborns and puppies included in their training, the ones they are made to kill. They are made to get hooked on a painkiller drug, not allowed to keep any name or identity, are stripped of their emotion and connection to others by the newborn and puppy killing, they're made into eunuchs and denied relationships of any kind, and are basically dehumanised in every way possible. We generally nearly run out of crimes to lay at the feet of Krasnys and Astapor. This is dehumanising at its very best, the turning of children into walking weapons and leaving them nothing resembling a human life. The death and abuse of children is such a large theme on both sides of the narrow sea, and I've already mentioned Hosea into the conversation, so, so it is going to come full circle. Let's not forget, Danny has also witnessed Araya's fate back in Game of Thrones, and I've, I was hoping I wouldn't have to say that name again, but here we are. And it's Game of Thrones I think about most when reading this scene, just given Ned's constant grieving for children lost to war. I think that's where the children theme comes through strongest back in our first book. There's just so much collateral damage as well. A thousand unsullied are presented to Daenerys in the scene, but we don't see the 2,000 of their group that would have died during training, or the combined 2,000 slave newborns and puppies at the completion of their training, just to make this happen. And I link that to Varys in my mind, because... Okay, we see Varys and his secrets from his spy networks. We even get a little glimpse of his birds at the end of Dance, but we don't see the countless mutilated children that have come before and likely perished since. So that's a, a connection I keep making in my mind. It also stood out to me more in this reread, the diversity within the unsullied ranks. I'll give you this quote. More than half had the copper skins and almond eyes of Dothraki and Lazarine, but she saw men of the free cities in the ranks as well, along with pale carthine, ebon-faced summer islanders, and others whose origins she could not guess. So I had definitely forgotten there were a high number of Dothraki among their number, showing the vicious cycle that even slavers can fall prey to slavers. But this also goes to show that children have been stolen from all over the continent and beyond. This is a system affecting people from thousands and thousands of miles away, this black cloud that hangs over all of Essos. Again, it tells us how far-reaching Danny's actions are going to be. Put plainly, this is just evil at its very highest. Even if we didn't have Krasny's abusing the Unsullied in front of Danny's eyes, living people have been stamped down into walking tools and objects. 
is the very highest version of thraldom. These are dead men walking, living one of the cruelest existences imaginable, where they survived a horrendous childhood only to be treated as expendable. It's unsurprising that Danny wants to rid the world of this system and becomes this messiah figure in the process. Now the Unsullied and their training and all of this is presented in such a casual manner and in the manner of a pure business transaction that I think it is meant to be shocking to both the reader and Daenerys, again getting us to support the fist pump moment that we know is coming soon. But I think it's meant to hit Daenerys particularly hard because back in Game of Thrones she was part of all this. Her desire to return to Westeros drove Khal Drogo to capture and sell the Lazarine, some of whom could have easily ended up here in this hellish existence for all we know. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it's ever present in the text that Daenerys makes this connection. Just as unfortunate, Danny doesn't make the connection that her faithful bear is in full support of the trade that supports all these crimes, and that he presumably knew something of their training methods when he suggested Daenerys come here. Barristan will have to remind her of that a little bit later in the chapter, and it's really important that we all remember it. What is a great choice by George is to have Barristan accompany Daenerys to the plaza, because he is such an inverse mirror to the Unsullied. Like them, Barry lives, or lived, a life of servitude, he is allowed no sexual or romantic relationship, he is expected to die if the order is made, but he is obviously nothing like the Unsullied in any way because he chose that life. That life comes with honour and prestige, and most importantly, Barry is still a human. He also makes some concrete points about whether the Unsullied are truly brave or not if the element of pain has been removed from the equation, and I have to say I agree with him on this point. I've never liked the inclusion of the wine of courage, personally, and Barry likely thinks it cheapens the whole idea of which he has given so much of himself to over the decades. The second part of Barry's conversation is a lot more practical and reminds Daenerys what her actual long-term goal is here, which she's going to be doing more and more as we go on. I'll read you this quote. When the day comes that you raise your banners, half of Westeros will be with you, Whitebeard promised. Your brother Rhaegar is still remembered, with great love. And my father, Danny said. The old man hesitated before saying, King Eris is also remembered. He gave the realm many years of peace. Your grace, you have no need of slaves. Magister Illyro can keep you safe while your dragons grow. Unfortunately, Barristan still can't quite broach the subject of Eris's true nature, so his point falls flat because he can't have an honest discussion about the state of Westeros and their relationship with House Targaryen. Instead, he's forced to try and go back to his mission of getting Danny to Illyro, but as we know, that mission is all but doomed now that Danny has seen these horrors, and Barristan rarely raises it again after this. The conversation with Barris later continues with Daenerys having to examine her own relationship with slavery, but unfortunately not on the terms of the Lazarine that we mentioned a moment ago. I'll give you this quote. Better to come a beggar than a slave, Aston said. There speaks one who has been neither, Danny's nostrils flared. Do you know what it is like to be sold, squire? I do. My brother sold me to Carl Drogo for the promise of a golden crown. Now this makes for a really interesting conflict within Daenerys. On one hand, she knows exactly what it is to be sold as a slave, and what that does to a person. On the other... She knows what being the Beggar King did to Viserys, and on this occasion she announces if she was going to either become her brother or put someone else in the same horrible position she was once in, she's going to choose the former. And that's tough to swallow because we all love Daenerys, but it's worth thinking on. And if we're going to talk about Barristan still weighing up the Danny versus Ares debate, perhaps we should put stock in this quote. I have a dragon's temper, that's all. You must not let it frighten you. I shall try and remember, Whitebeard smiled. Huh, I bet you will, Barry. I'm sure you will try and remember that probably should. So before Daenerys returns back to her ship, we have this last little bit of this negotiating period. I'll read you this quote. The good master has said that these units cannot be tempted with coin or flesh, Danny told the girl. But if some enemy of mine should offer them freedom for betraying me, 
and it goes on. So Daenerys is being so clever here, and we have to assume she's already trying to figure some way she can gain the Unsullied without actually buying into the transaction process. Specifically, she's asking about freeing these poor souls, and I don't think it's coincidence that she asks this question directly after she finds out about the Unsullied having to kill newborns. That seems to be the final straw, as you can understand. And directly after this is when she starts weighing up how many she can buy. Combine this, combine this with her later asking Jorah about how the city defends itself, and on reread, we can see the formations of her plan. I didn't realise it came this early that she had already started thinking about this. So on to the second half of this chapter. And cruelly, George has made us wait this long to reassure us that nothing further happened between Jorah and Danny back in Daenerys 1, back on the ship. Just as cruelly, it appears that Daenerys cites Jorah's stolen kiss as the reason for her reawakened sexuality, which is just too... Ew. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. To cheer us up, Danny does go through all the reasons why it's wrong for Jorah to presume, as she puts it, which is an incredibly kind way of putting it, to be fair. You could use a lot of nastier words than presume. And we can see why she's not hoodwinked at all. She knows he did it despite him being her subordinate. She knows it's creepy that he's so much older. And critically, she knows he did it without her consent, so we can at least rest easy in that respect. Let's go into a bit of the conversation between Jorah and Danny here. I have another quote. Eunuchs made of brick, like the rest of Astapor. Shall I buy 8,000 brick eunuchs with dead eyes that never move, who kill suckling babes for the sake of a spiked hat and strangle their own dogs? They don't even have names, so don't call them men, sir. This just goes to show that Daenerys has been listening to this podcast, as she neatly connects the dehumanisation of the Unsullied to those crumbling bricks we mentioned right back at the beginning. Now back on the safety of her ship, she can finally let the frustration of the day out, frustration combined with extreme confusion over what her next move is. And I also fully support the decision to unleash frustration by slapping Jorah Mormont. All characters in the Song of Ice and Fire should follow suit, to be honest. As soon as the Unsullied are brought up, Sir Jorah doesn't exactly defend the Astaporian training regime, perhaps only because he gets interrupted, but he doesn't decry it either, confirming what we mentioned earlier of him knowing exactly what happens to these boys. Indeed, he's happy to pass it all off as necessary, as blood on the hands for a final goal. I think Aziz got to my note on Jorah making a, a weird connection to the sack of King's Landing here, and I, I just find it incredibly creepy when he talks about the sack, as if it didn't really have any effect on him, but he just knows that this is an argument that might work on Daenerys. Secondly, there's a strong vibe of racism and his support of slavery here, as he's basically saying it's okay if the children of Essos are made to suffer, if it in turn saves the people of Westeros. He's putting more value on one type of people than the other. It's redundant to argue whether a sack or the Unsullied training is a worse atrocity, although it is worth mentioning that the Unsullied casualties are 100% children as opposed to a sacking, but either way the message is clear. Jorah cares very little for any of them, and he wants Daenerys to forget all she's seen of Essos as soon as she leaves, because that's certainly what he'll be doing. He'll just forget. Luckily, as mentioned, Daenerys has been looking for another path through all the chapter, a path that no one else would dare to dream of. And don't you worry, because we will be talking about that at the end of the podcast in Daenerys' next chapter. And from there, we're going to take a very, very far trip. Might be one of our furthest trips, chapter to chapter, in this whole book, actually. We're going all the way up north, right into the heart of the north, to visit Bran 2. This is the most Isle of Faces focused chapter in all the Song of Ice and Fire, so we'd best pay attention. It's also a very different chapter than the one we've just been through. Daenerys is all about the crumbling dust and horrible atrocities and everything going on on the other side of the world, whereas this chapter is a much more fairy tale type chapter we get nice imagery at the beginning we get a lovely story a nice fable from Mira. It's, it's very different and the point of this chapter is the incredibly important incredibly teasing story that i've just mentioned that Mira tells 
before that there is the famous meeting with the little man and before that is the extended opening sequence specifically painting a picture of the wild north slowly falling to autumn and winter as we said in brand one this is the clearest picture we ever get of the deep north outside winterfell and george wants to make it clear that they are far from the beaten path now i think it's that idea of being in the wild and away from the standard that allows us to have this huge meta story that is really being gifted for no other reason than george wants to throw us a big tasty but still teasing bone to coincide with the feeling of being in the wilderness Bran moves our attention into the unknown mountains along the western side of the north, those unmapped and with families who really haven't been brought to our attention just yet. This way, we at least know a bit more of their existence for when Stannis adds them to the war in A Dance with Dragons, and it's our first mention of Bucket's Wall since Ned had his fever dream back in Game of Thrones. And it sure is handy that Bran happens to mention these lesser-known families and mountain clans just before they run into one of their members. This also serves as a certain relief to the pain Bran has left behind. Though we know the clans are not exempt from their own form of politics, they can be seen, especially by Bran, as more pure northerners set aside from the politics that have consumed the main families and burnt Winterfell to the ground. It's good for Bran to believe that not all is lost in the north and that some are still loyal to the name Stark and all they have stood for. This will be a recurring theme through the chapter. It's a smaller note, but speaking of Bucket's Wall, also puts us in mind of the Tower of Joy and the past of the previous generation of Starks, just in time for this tale of the Night of the Laughing Tree. Speaking of starts gone by, when Bran and the others take refuge of the little man, the main purpose of the conversation is a reminder of the peace and stability that the Starks have maintained for thousands of years, again telling us that not all of the North is in political turmoil just yet, and again setting up why they would care to follow Stannis in A Dance of Dragons. To continue with this political theme, the little man gives us an update on the two sides of the North, with the Boltons in the East and the Ironborn in the West. It's nothing that even first-time readers wouldn't have assumed, but seeing as we don't have a POV actually interacting with the North until Dance of Dragons, it's an important update. We know that Ramsay has relocated to the Dreadfort and is aware that he needs to locate Bran and Rickon, giving us just a bit of that danger on the horizon we've had so often in Aya chapters and in Sam's debut. And now we also still know that the Ironborn are hanging around in the Wolfswood. At first, I thought this may have been those who abandoned Fion trying to make their way back to the sea, but now it occurs to me it might be Asher coming out of Deepwood Mott on her way to Winterfell to search for Fionn's body, as we'll find out about in, in Feast of Crows. I also wonder if Ramsay eventually ends up convincing himself that Jon did take in Bran and or Rickon at this time. I'm not sure that line of thinking ever gets followed up on or covered in Fionn's dance chapters, so it's worth thinking about. Here's a quote. I'm paying good silver for wolfskin, a man hears, and maybe gold for word of a certain other walking dead. Okay, we, we know what he means here, but it's a pure choice of phrase in these times in the Sam chapter we just had, walking dead. Don't call them down upon you, little man. And this little man, he also has a really intimate knowledge of what's happening in the Night's Watch, seemingly more than anyone else in the North at this time, and I'd love to know more about how he knows that. So Mr. Little, as we'll call him, he covers the past, he covers the present, but when he leaves before Bran wakes, he also covers the future. By showing his kindness and hospitality, his own version of the lessons of the Starks, leaving them food, while obviously not going to tell anyone of the fact that Bran is alive or his location, Mr. Liddell reinstalls a sense of hope and goodness in Bran that's reminiscent of his final viewing of Winterfell and Clash of Kings. This quote proves it. One day there would be Starks in Winterfell again, he told himself, and then he'd send for the Liddells and pay them back a hundredfold for every nut and berry. These are the kind of things you can bet your bottom dollar are going to raise their head again by full time. And though Bran says Starks, not I, will be back in Winterfell, it does go to show that Bran still has a strong connection with the inhabitants of the North that his siblings do not, at least not yet, bear that in mind for later. 
And before we get to this main point of the chapter, the big tale, Bran sees an eagle and wants to try and walk into it. And at this point, first timers still know very little of the rules of warging, but the fact is an eagle is obviously connected when we've already seen another warg be linked to that particular animal. Though George obviously isn't trying to trick anyone that this is a rail already making his way this far south, he might fool a few into wondering whether Bran will come across a rail later and finally meet another warg, considering they are both moving closer to the wall. We have another quote from Jojen here. There are no knights in the neck, said Jojen. Above the water, his sister corrected. The bogs are full of dead ones, though. I say this merely because it's nomination for badass line of the day. It's Mira taking some pride in her homeland, and I really like it. Maybe we should start talking about this story, though, as it is, like I say, the main point of the chapter. It's a wonderful introduction into the fact we're going to be settling in for this long story by being reminded of old Nan, and George reaching through the page to give us a nudge about how much we all like stories, and specifically, how we all like to read them again and again. Definitely, you can't accuse George of not being aware of his reader base. So as Mira begins to tell Bran about this this hero from the from the neck, from the Cranaglands, we have this quote. No, said Mira, but he could breathe mud and run on leaves, and change earth to water, and water to earth, with no more than a whispered word. He could talk to trees, and weave words, and make castles appear and disappear. So I'm sure there's an actual reasonable explanation for all of these. I'm sure the reeds know how to use reeds to breathe from underwater, for example. But either way, I definitely want to know more about them, and this quote teases me, I'm willing to admit. Jojen gets into the conversation with this quote. Or not, Jojen's face was dappled with green shadows. Prince Bran has heard that tale a hundred times, I'm sure. Jojen's first point that he believes Bran to have heard the story doesn't really register, but the fact that he asks not once but twice more if Bran has definitely not heard it really cements the fact in our minds and gets us wondering why he's asking. Why is it so important that he thinks Bran has heard this? With a bit more of the information, we can clearly see it's because Ned wanted to keep any information about John's conception completely hidden. This story also has a Shire Dane in it, whom Ned also didn't want discussed. Clearly, he wouldn't be telling any of his children this tale, even if it is incredibly unlikely any of them would piece it all together, because that's how deep Ned's wounds go on this matter, as we discussed at length back in Game of Thrones. Obviously, Howland Reed didn't feel the same, and happily told his children. It has me wondering if Howland has broken some vow of silence sworn to Ned, or if one ever existed in the first place. This was just a very different situation for him. Howland didn't need to protect John because he wasn't with John. The inhabitants of Greywater Watch don't interact with the rest of the world, so there's no worries about this story getting out. And also, why wouldn't Howland want to tell the story of his steps into the real world, his time with the Green Men, and how the mighty Stark stepped up to protect him and maintain his honour? Indeed, he may have used this story when impressing the need for Stark loyalty upon his children, and maybe for this specific mission thereon. More importantly, this is a story of how Howland made his first friends, but for Ned, this is a story of the beginning of the end for his entire family, and he likely tried to bury it as deep as he could rather than relive it. I don't have the quote here, but it's a fitting reminder of all we learnt in Clash of Kings, when Mira reminds Bran that knights can be the monsters, and really it takes us back to a constant argument from the second book of the series. That line instantly makes me think of Gregor Clegane, and I'm sure it does for many of you out there. But here's a different quote. So he donned a shirt sewn with bronze scales, like mine, took up a leathern shield and a three-pronged spear, like mine, and paddled a little skin boat down the Green Fork. So I'm hoping against hope that this really is the items that went down south and Howland has passed on to Mira, and these are actually the same ones from the story. That's just a nice little Easter egg that would uh, make me quite happy. Now something I don't think I noted on previous reads is that this is, at once, a great story for Bran, in that it mirrors his own boyhood dreams of travelling south and getting involved in a tourney or other exciting adventures, while also being incredibly hard for Bran to hear, because he never did and never will get to do any of that. 
Perhaps he can relate to the Kranich boy slash Howland in that Howland was cast aside and treated poorly for being different, but at least he was there at all, which Bran can't be, making this all the more important for Bran to be the one hearing the story. While it's also clear to me the story has to be told to Bran, because he would not be looking for the romantic hints about Lyanna and Rhaegar, and thus makes it a lot more interesting to analyse. I also think it has to be Bran because it is so tied into knighthood and the adventures of leaving home. It's interesting because we've gone through nearly three books now of having almost all the Starks as a POV character. Sorry, Rob and Rickon. So to find out that we're getting a story about the older generation of Starks through the lens of someone who is not a member of the family is, is really cool. I think it's such superb structure by George. The first interaction Howland has with one of the Starks is Lyanna protecting him and helping him out specifically because he is her father's man. Essentially, it is exactly what the little man has just described about the days of old, when the mighty Starks protect those sworn to them. A quote from a bit further along in the story. While the last attended a knight with, with two towers on his surcoat, a sigil all Cranigman knew well. The fray, said Bran, the phrase of the crossing. I don't think George had to make the antagonist in this story a fray to make it work, but it definitely ties into the book we are currently in, with the phrase about to turn into the ultimate villains for Northmen who have come south. Now I've always thought it very clear that the Anna was the Laughing Knight, so I'm not going to go too deep on any discussion about the identity, but I do think it's laid out pretty clear, personally. We also get a very clear timestamp when the story talking of both Ares and Rhaegar being present at the tourney, which we now know meant Rhaegar wasn't able to drum up enough support to take on his father. We're told about Jaime's being named to the Kingsguard, and Tyrone's returning to the Rock, which we've already visited in Jaime 1. So that's just an interesting crossover there. And from this point on in the story, the hints flow thick and fast. We first have Lyanna crying at Rhaegar singing, establishing an original connection, and note that she rifts slightly with Benjen about this fact, and that leads me to think Benjen will wait until after the war, but he can trace his motivation about the Night's Watch back to around this time, I think as he's got to my notes on, on Benjen here. And then the fact that Rhaegar is sent after the Night of the Laughing Tree, only to not find anything. I think we all agree the idea is that Rhaegar found Lyanna, was so impressed with what she had done by entering the lists, etc., that the line between them finally sparked and then would wind up sending the world into chaos. And interestingly, the bit Mira leaves out is the bit we know about from other sources, about Rhaegar bypassing Elia and going to Lyanna instead, despite the huge publicity of such and the fact that Elia was already pregnant at the time, I think. Again, this is the plunge, the moment when all the smiles died, and we can imagine Ned referring back to this as the moment everything went wrong. So there was this private moment between Lyanna and Rhaegar, and then the very public one. They both add up to one thing, Robert's Rebellion. And just like that, the story is told and gone, and Bran reads isn't reflecting it too much going forward. Yet for obvious reasons, it remains a fan favourite, and I'm sure he's did a much better job of me breaking down the whole story, but I think that's his arena rather than mine. So let's move on to third chapter of the day. We're going down to Dragonstone for Davos Free. Like Daenerys' chapter, and maybe Jamie's first two also, Davos had two chapters to return from the dead and get put in place for his actual Storm of Swords arc which is sorting out Dragonstone and becoming the angel on Stannis' shoulder opposite Melisandre's devil. But as much as this is the beginning of that next section for Davos, it first returns to something very similar to Davos 1. It's the other side of the coin, if you will. Where Davos was stranded on an island, his whole, his whole world reduced to a few feet of rock, he was utterly trapped, awaiting death and soaked in cold. Two chapters later, and he's stranded in a cell, his whole world reduced to a few feet of rock, he's utterly trapped, but by comparison, he's cosy and warm. At least he doesn't have to smash crabs open anymore. We could even say that Davos wouldn't have got through this stay in his cell without that first stop on that island back in the Blackwater Bay. 
Just to set the mood, most of the first few paragraphs are about the warmth and fires of Dragonstone, not only making castle nerds like myself wonder about the mysteries of the island, but also putting us in mind of the coming Melisandre. In fact, Davos's cell is literally half in light and half in darkness, again painting that picture of Davos and Mel prepping to go to war over Stannis' soul. And we can get to this in later chapters, but I argue Davos saves the collective soul of Dragonstone with his later deeds for Edric Storm. If we want to buy into the idea of Dragonstone as a potentially hellish place of fire, I say it maybe reacts to the souls of those who inhabit it. If people are bad in Dragonstone, the flames feed on that. The people draw from that energy, and so the cycle goes. But I digress. So this physical cell is a fitting place for Davos to think on the ethics or morality of what he is going to do going forward. On the island, he had to think of life first. Now, in a place that could be seen as a grave down in the ground, it could make Davos think of supernatural laws as he sits in a place directly linked to human law, and by which I mean a cell, and as a room close to the fires of Dragonstone, which could be incredibly important in the War for Humanity. And that creates a nice link in that it makes sense we see the man who will turn Davos towards the north and his destiny sitting in that room that could be connected to all, all this supernatural stuff. And there's two-pronged attack there. We've got the human structure of law and the supernatural structure of uh, fires fighting the terror of the ice. Another similarity between this and Davos 1 is fever, something that will come up again throughout this book, most notably with Jamie. The rock of Davos 1 gave Davos his fever, but Dragonstone and its people take it away. It's tough for first-time readers to realise that Stannis has ordered Davos taken care of, not only hinting that Davos won't have to stay overly long, but also that Stannis has a soft spot when it comes to his onion buddy. You can't fool us with the moody act, Stannis, we know what you're really like. Davos gives us hints of how much of a people person he is in this chapter, with how he reads the Golas and ascertains the, the one's love for the rats, which is a nice humanising touch from George. We haven't seen too much of that from Davos so far, other than his friendship with Cresson, his respected nod from Courtney Penrose, and interactions with Salador San, but it is going to be a much bigger part of his arsenal going forward in this book, as he gathers men for his Edric mission, and definitely going into dance with his role as Hand. It's worth noting that Davos does stumble on his mental path when he considers the possibility of ending up like Sir Hubert Rampton and feeding the flames. And to be fair, his instincts are semi-right, as another resident of the cells will be burnt later on in this book. For a few moments he goes back to Sea Rock Davos, thinking he would be far more aligned to a death by water than fire. Then, as if thinking of fire can summon her, Melisandre makes her entrance into this book. Let me read you the quote. Davos felt a queer flush come over him. He glanced up through the bars, and there she stood, in shimmering scarlet with her great ruby at her throat, her red eyes gleaming as bright as the torch that bathed her. It's worth looking at this opening sentence, seeing as the characteristic associated with the physical descriptions of the cell so far also match Melisandre. Most enticing to the reader is that Davos can feel her arrival, a hint of her power perhaps. Or, with benefit of reread, we can wonder if her high body temperature actually changes the room. As a reminder of our original introduction and questions about her, he also notes the ruby, the fact that it's gleaming, as it did when Crescent died and beneath Storm's End, only heightens our awareness of someone quite unusual walking onto the scene. Red eyes are also mentioned, and that always makes me think of ghosts as well. And that's interesting given that Ghost and Melisandre might be interacting quite a bit in John's resurrection. Critically, Davos does not refrain from telling Melisandre exactly what he seeks in the form of Devon and Stannis, although maybe we should note that he actually lists Stannis first. It is these two that have dragged him back out of the sea, and because it is Davos he can only be straightforward, which is critical when it's Melisandre who holds all the power over his fate. As if to solidify that point, Melisandre proves it by threatening to remove Davos's lamp, instantly putting her step forward in their conversation, as already proven that her champion fire is indeed important to Davos. I'll give you the quote. 
She lifted a hand towards the torch in the wall sconce. This is all that stands between you and darkness, Onion Knight. This little fire, this gift of law, shall I put it out? No, he moved to the bars. Please. He did not think he could bear that, to be left alone in utter blackness with no one but the rats for company. The red woman's lips curved upward in a smile. So you have come to love the fire, it would seem. It's important we view this interaction both as rereaders and as first-timers, because the two viewpoints are incredibly different. By this point, for first-time readers, all we really know of Melisandre is that she semi-killed Crescent and used incredibly dark magic to kill Courtney Penrose and probably Renly by extension. Oh, that and she burns people alive. Considering Davos has been locked up like those people who get burned, and now she's being a knob about taking his fire away, we can forgive first-time readers for really hating Melisandre at this moment. But for re-readers, we now know that Melisandre's true purpose is to save humanity, and her ultimate goals for Stannis are aligned with Davos's. She's using these following moments and the metaphor of the flame to tell Davos what she can provide for humanity, what she intends for Allure and Stannis to give humanity, whilst not making herself completely vulnerable to him. Mel has to be suspicious too, she can't risk losing Stannis to just anyone. I mean, it is still a little harsh to toy with the lamp in this manner, but we know she has a purpose behind it. And again, as the conversation goes on, Davos sticks to truth and virtue, even if it means angering this woman who holds his life in her hands. He tells her he doesn't believe her, he names her evil, and he downright rebukes her when she suggests him coming to her chambers to make another shadow assassin. It's all just another step to painting Davos as the angel of virtue and righteousness that he'll continue to be on Dragonstone. Even when Melisandre mentions Gunther's sunglass to remind Davos and us of the potential danger for our POV here, he holds firm. It also goes to show that Melisandre is a big picture type thinker, so much so that the horrible burning of multiple people does not present a problem to her, and that's one of the lines of thinking that won't change with her POV in Dance with Dragons. She's committed to the bottom line, in the same way that Varys is, meaning she toys with her own line of evil, which is funny comparison when you think about it, considering Varys' views on magic. And it's important that Melisandre's strength of conviction is reaffirmed here, given the coming storyline of Edric. The reader has to know she will absolutely go forward with burning a teenage boy alive if she thinks it will help her cause, making Davos's own storyline and efforts all the more critical. Here's another quote from Melisandre. Will your life, Davos Seaworth, as well say it was so yesterday? She shook her head sadly. Again, a throwaway line on first read, but now it really inflames the idea that no one knows how old Melisandre truly is, as well as trying to gain the upper hand in this discussion. It's almost like an older sibling citing greater knowledge of the universe because of their extra years on the planet. Melisandre considers Davos's meagre time with the Seven not nearly enough to bring understanding of the war of light and dark that Melisandre is aware of. Another interesting line here. Do you think I crossed half the world to put yet another vain king on, a, on yet another empty throne? Bah! This always gets me wondering whether she came to Westeros specifically for Stannis or she figured out he was the one she could manipulate. Or as I frequently think to myself, she came for Dragonstone itself. I, I just don't know, and I need to know. Another quote for you here. One is black, the other white. There is ice, and there is fire. Hate and love, bitter and sweet, male and female, pain and pleasure, winter and summer, evil and good. So like we said in Brand 2, it's been a while since we've had any fire and ice stuff, but now it's coming along two chapters in a row. Interestingly, Mira painted opposites as two things that can mix and interact, whereas Melisandre argues that there is an eternal balance where they will remain separate and opposite. It'll be interesting to see if she remains with that worldview the longest with John, and if she comes to believe ice and fire must come together, will she find out that John is already that perfect mix? Will she champion pairing him with Daenerys, or will she consider herself the fire to John's ice? In that same vein, there's this quote: "On one side is Valor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Against him stands the Great Other, whose name may not be spoken, 
the Lord of Darkness, the Soul of Ice, the God of Night and Terror. This is obviously getting way ahead of ourselves. We're continuing the discussion of Daenerys and Jon, and I am incredibly excited to see Melisandre interact with either Daenerys and all the dragons. I just want to note that. It's interesting to note that the side Mel stands on is the Heart of Fire, which would obviously make us think of Daenerys, whereas the Great Other is named the Soul of Ice, which might make us think of the others, but also links directly to Jon. Will Melisandre eventually turn on Jon? Will she sacrifice him to the other side, knowing Jon must become an other to save humanity? We could spend all day guessing, but I wonder if the discovered union of fire and ice in Jon will just utterly confuse Melisandre and leave her trying to work out what needs to be done. In that same vein, I'm not even sure I ever clicked that Stannis adds a flaming heart to his sigil because Valor has the title Heart of Fire. That's something new to me this time around. Perhaps you noticed it first. After Melisandre's elongated and passionate speech, Davos still sticks to the truth about his not buying what she's selling. And this time, she congratulates him for it. Probably because he's at least moved into doubt instead of outright rejection. The conversation of the Blackwater burning his sons follows quickly. And we should note that after this, Davos does seem to slowly let go of the idea that Melisandre was responsible for their deaths after this. At the same time, it's a big relief we find out that Salador Sand didn't give Davos away. That's one of the best friendships in the Song of Ice and Fire and it gets to remain strong. We get a real idea of the range of Melisandre's visions here too, that they include a spectrum ranging from threats on her person, as we'll learn more about in Dance, all the way to the climactic battle for existence against the others. In this moment it gives the impression she can see anything, and even though we will come to see the limits of those visions, the intent here is clear to make Davos feel as though she is all-powerful, so he doesn't get any ideas about maybe letting Edric storm out the back door. Just as she leaves, Melisandre reminds Davos about why it is she specifically follows Stannis, about how she is using a double-bind strategy by, by being pointed to him not only through visions but from prophecy as well. Perhaps because I've now planted the seed in my own head, so much of this paragraph points me towards Daenerys. I'll give you this quote. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amid smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. The bleeding star has come and gone, and Dragonstone is the place of smoke and salt. I can see Mel's logic why she relates all this to Stannis, but we know Daenerys is linked to the comet. We know she experienced a rebirth amongst smoke, although I'll admit the salt might be missing, and she actually woke dragons from stone, while actually being truly born on Dragonstone, the place of smoke and salt. I just hope that above all, Melisandre does find all this out at some point, because I would love to see her reaction. And who is to truly say? Maybe the prophecy means both Stannis and Daenerys. To bring the conversation back to our POV character, Melisandre is forgiving of Davos even though she has not converted him, likely because of his truth-telling. Knowing Stannis is in dire need of a lord or a hand, he will always be honest, and possibly because she has seen Davos in the flames and knows what use he will be either sooner or later. We can almost see a line of respect develop between the two after this meeting, at least from Melisandre's side. At the very least, I'd say this is our most intimate look at Melisandre so far in the series, and she does leave him the lamp after all. And Mel's words have enough of an effect that Davos actually stares at the flame of that lamp, seeing if he can also see any visions. He shares our relief about Sadal San, but as George brilliantly puts it, Davos is god-blind and tired, and is quite happy the conversation is over. Yet, as we'll see later in the book, Davos will come to see Stannis as the saviour of the Sivan Kingdoms, the one true king archetype, even if not quite in the same supernatural frame that Melisandre employs. That's nearly a chapter's worth of information right there, but we have a second half to come when Alistair Florent becomes Davos's cellmate. Alistair is probably a much more welcome guest than Melisandre was, given that the conversation can turn from almighty forces deciding the fate of humanity to a more equal chat about politics and the handship. Davos can be a much more active participant in those types of conversations, the type he actually knows something about. Even without Melisandre being present, 
Her presence lingers in the, in the scene of Alistair being thrown into jail by his own brother. Crucially, Axel and the others bear the flaming heart of Queensmen, and we see how deep Melisandre and her faith have infiltrated the infrastructure of Dragonstone leadership. Selyse was already obviously far gone, but now the fanaticism has spread so far that a brother will happily throw a brother into jail. A hand can easily be de-handed and turned into a prisoner. And for all the positives Melisandre just presented about R'hllor, about R'hllor ultimately wanting to save people, we are now reminded of the evil side of this absolute conviction and dedication to religion. This quote, His birth will not serve him here, thought Davos. It serves Davos to be locked up with someone from the opposite side of the social spectrum, because he finds he is clearly more capable than Alistair Florin ever was, and he's more loyal too. So this will surely boost his confidence when he comes to be named Hand. There's no opportunity to fall back on the uh, I'm too lowly argument when he's just witnessed how little that helped Alistair, especially as the latter clearly struggles with his imprisonment far more than a man who's already survived a much worse island in the recent past. Alistair trying to sue for peace reminds us how bad Stannis' situation actually is in the frame of war. A first-time reader could, e could easily think that the Lannisters slash Tyrells would have pushed up a combined attack on Dragonstone, although I forget if they have cited needing to get more ships up from the Reach yet. And they could have ended everything for Team Stannis right there. Certainly, much of early Clash of Kings was spent lamenting how Stannis didn't have nearly enough men or allies, and now he seems to have less. But as the narrative goes on, and with some rereads, we learn that while the situation is bad, it's not quite as bad as Alistair makes out. Davos's further chapters on Dragonstone introduce a fair number of individual knights from both the Crownlands and Stormlands, and we meet even more when it comes to travelling north. So while the Florence remain the largest name attached to Stannis, and can claim a larger percentage of his supporters than anyone else, they are far from the only friends left to him, as Alistair claims. While it's hardly ever brought up past this point, we heavily discussed at the time that Stannis' letter was effective for inspiring loyalty, and we see that effect now. When Alistair finally spills over the terms offered to Tywin, we learn a lot more about his personality and what he was personally looking for in the deal. I'll give you this quote. I am his hand, the hand of the king. How can I be a traitor? This is our first quote of interest because Alistair clearly believes that by right of his title as hand, he simply cannot be a traitor because his position makes him all-powerful. It's in the definition in the job description. It's an interesting line given that Tyrion, a former hand, will later be accused of being a traitor and Ned Stark was a hand labelled as a traitor and beheaded for it. And many believe Barriss and Selmy will come to betray da Daenerys and Wins, and he's acting as a Hand of the Queen type figure now in dance, so that's all connecting there. Clearly, Alistair is wrong in this assumption, especially because he does not consult Stannis about his plans as Davos quickly sniffs out, likely because he knows they would instantly be shot down. The privilege of Alistair Florent comes into play again here. He believes he should be allowed to do what he wants as Hand, because he is Hand, a far cry from Davos's theory on servitude. And yet, having said that, Davos will come to a disobey in his own way, so it makes for an interesting conversation. In this same paragraph, Alistair slips up by saying, my terms, not Stannis's, forgetting that it is Stannis fighting this war versus Tywin, not Alistair Florent. And he also mentions he would need Salador Sand just to get the message to King's Landing. So clearly, not official, not on the board, and not sanctioned by Stannis. Another quote. I vowed to do the same, for the return of Brightwater Keep and all our lands. So this is the real kicker. Sure, Alistair makes sure Stannis gets to stay as leader of Dragonstone, but it's clear what he's really seeking is his wealth, his privilege, and his social standing back. It was all fun and games when the Alistairs looked to massively profit. Not so much now, so Alistair wants to quit the table and get his opening bet back. Oh, and he's willing to sell Shireen to do it, ensuring that Tywin will always control Stannis from this day on, while the Florence will head back down south, at the complete opposite side of the continent from both the rage of Tywin or Stannis, we should note, and hope to be forgotten about. It should also not be ignored that what Alistair is buying for Stannis, i.e. the Dragonstone that Stannis already has, 
would only be temporary as Tom would come to inherit it later, whereas Brightwater will remain with the Florence forever. And it's worth noting at this point, don't forget, Tywin has actually already given away Brightwater Keep to the Tyrells, so just keep that in mind. The other irony is that Alistair claims he seeks to reclaim lost honour and find an honourable way to admit defeat, but again he is really only concerned of himself. Stannis has publicly declared Tommen as a bastard of incest, and as Davos is naturally aware of, allowing Shireen to marry such would either signal Stannis as a liar or a man who doesn't mind incest neither of which would ever be acceptable on any level. As we said, Davos will come to his own decisions on acting against orders for Stannis' best interest, but the key difference is that Davos never seeks to do this in order to better himself. He has the war in mind, the overall, and he maintains his grip on right and wrong, refusing to be swallowed by politics entirely. Essentially, we get this incredibly clear lesson on how not to be a hand, shortly before one of the most deserving men in the series inherits the title. And that is Davos 3, so... For a free down two to go, I'm going to take a quick break here just, just to give two shout outs to the, the fandom at large. The first I want to know, I'm sure you all know Girls Gone Canon, the podcast, the wonderful podcast, guests of the Isle of Faces once upon a time. And I'm sure if you're if you're listening to this, you're always definitely already consuming their content. I only mention now because they have started a new POV. If you're not aware, somehow, the girls are going on a reread through each POV and they've just started Jamie. So I, I think they've just released Jamie 2 over the weekend. And I only mention because not only is it fantastic content, as always, very, very funny and informative, but obviously connects quite well with this kind of area we're looking at with the first couple of Jamie chapters. So that might be worth having a look and just connecting over there. Second shout out is to the boys of Davos Fingers because they've started dropping hints that a song of madness is coming. Hashtag a song of madness, the, the bracket that they run every year. And again, I'm assuming 99.9% .9 of you are aware of how this works. If not, go and have a look at their uh, Twitter feed and just look at past instances, because it's a really fun kind of tournament kind of a thing that a lot of the fandom gets really into. It's very fun, and uh, if you're not already involved, please make sure you are at this time whenever that starts. I personally cannot wait i flex my fingers as i tweeted to them okay so that's the shout outs done let's keep going here because we're already on the long side although i did warn you about that to be fair so let's restart by going back north for john three so far in john's storm story his focus has fairly been on trying to stay alive and his mission and spying on the wildlings those don't disappear in this chapter but a new element joins center stage as his relationship with egret moves in from the perimeter to the main and John's path becomes far more tangled. Most notably, the events of this chapter are the beginnings of his true ties to the Wildlings, massively influencing his dance with Dragon's Ark, but also adding an entirely new, much more emotional depth both to John's return to the Night's Watch and the Battle for the Wall. John's already started his journey with Egret, but he takes a big step here, or a big splash maybe, into probably the last thing he expected to find above the Wall, a relationship. Stating that this step is a huge part of the person John's John becomes is ridiculously obvious. But none of that really matters because John has to say goodbye to Ghost in this chapter, making it the most hated of all the Song of Ice and Fire chapters, because I cannot handle pet goodbyes in any way, shape or form. Before that, we begin with the scene of John thinking about the stars, and it's another great inclusion that doesn't add up to a whole bunch really, but it goes to show both the difference between the Wildlings and Northmen, and they're really just different shades of the same people. We've not had much of a chance to talk about this yet, but a Northman is much more similar to a Wildling than a Dornishman, for example. It's important to get this in early in a chapter where John and Egret are going to form that bridge between Wildlings and the Westerosi. And I tried to delay it there with that little thing about the stars, but already, straight away, we are pushed in, into John's farewell to Ghost. 
which is a nice connection because it's just been thinking about Aya in conjunction to Egret, and Aya also once had to say goodbye to a direwolf, though luckily John doesn't have to resort to throwing stones, which I would not have been able to bear if he had, I would have had to throw the book away. So it makes sense that John is already feeling a bit anti-Starky in this chapter, in his thoughts on stars, and how deep he's already fallen into the world and culture. He is about to lose the most Starkiest thing there is about him, after all. If we saw John's hidden black cloak as his remaining tether to the Night's Watch, and he's just had to say goodbye to his tether of being a Stark, everything he's been a part of since birth. Immediately, we see how down John is about the prospect of losing Ghost. He's 100% down on his mission, on what he should have done at the Fist, even his abilities as a warg. So much so, he tries some straight-up speech instead of creepy warg stuff to get his message across to Ghost, and I think it's kind of beautiful that Ghost simply springs away as any animal would, leaving both John and the reader to wonder if he heard the message, or if he's just being a puppy who smelt something. Given where he ends up later, it makes the question even louder. It does make you wonder if there's something of a missed opportunity in their time apart. There's no indication that John was going to particularly focus on his warg abilities, but he did make a major step in the frost fangs. And hey, Rob didn't have a teacher either, as far as we know, so he got pretty far with Greywind, so would John have achieved more without this extended absence? Luckily, the theory is he'll have a lot of time to make up for it at the beginning of Winds of Winter. And the good thing about this goodbye is that it sets up what might be the best written reunion scene, all of Song of Ice and Fire. Definitely one of the most beautiful and most important for impact on plot, but we have that to look forward to in like 70 chapters time or something like that. So while John doesn't actually move in this chapter, and the main plot points are around Ghost leaving and his relationship with Egret developing, I think the main reason for this chapter's inclusion is the constant evidence that John is falling further and further away from his mission and his identity, in a death by a thousand cuts type way. There's no big symbol, he doesn't burn his black cloak or anything of that nature, but he's constantly allowing himself small concessions, excusing himself as he falls away. He combines it with a glum theory on his own failure, like I mentioned a minute ago, his failure to kill Mance when he had the chance, his failure as a warg, failure as a man of honour. He focuses on his inability to get a message with Ghost, or even blow a horn to warn someone at the wall. He wonders if he ever deserved a sister like Aya, because of what he's done. He has thoughts such as this. For wilding raiders, he thought, like us, like me. Or ones that sneak up on him, like, I was a man of the Night's Watch. Was, he heard himself say. It's as if it's sneaking up on him how natural his new life is becoming, but it also gives very valid reasons why. In his mind, they are all just excuses. We see this continue much more strongly with Egret, when John stands tall in the face of human temptation, only to find he is actually very human himself. This incredibly relatable line sells it best. Even my father stumbled once, when he forgot his marriage vows and sighed a bastard. John vowed to himself that it would be the same with him. It will never happen again. It happened twice more that night, and again in the morning, when she woke to find him hard. Again, John is trying to excuse himself by stating that even the great Eddard Stark did the same, but as the chapter progresses, he is going to care less and less as he and Egret become more and more passionate, and find that he really has no moral defence for how far he's fallen. Slowly but surely, John falls harder into the wildling life, such a huge part of his character development and arc, but all of that pales in comparison to what he finds of Egret, that perfect little bubble in the cave that is such a far cry from the life of servitude that will become John's. Compare this to the John we find in Dance of Dragons, lamenting that he will have just one lot until the end of his days. This right here is the memory of pure happiness that he will remember, making this an incredibly important and beautiful chapter. Without it, John's eventual decision to tear himself away from all this, and his discovery of Egret's body at Castle Black, doesn't hit as quite as hard as it currently does. Though we don't have no Catelyn chapter this week, we can easily imagine Rob having some of the same thoughts when he is distraught over Bran and Rickon, only for Jane to, to appear in his arms. And thinking of the vow to the phrase, the promise he would never break, maybe just a kiss, and away we go. These are just teenagers after all, 
just because they are massively important to the wider world doesn't halt the charge of hormones. While John is certainly slipping further and further, his famous powers of observation are still putting in work. I love the detail of the cave opening to the north so as to be hidden from the wall. It really shows off how entwined the wildlings are of their own geography. More importantly is John paying close attention to the inner dynamics of the joint leadership between Sturr and Njal. It's an indictment on how the loose power structure of the wildlings can have negative consequences, especially in a passage where John goes through the more regimented yet still individual style of the different Night's Watch commanders in terms of how they like to send out their patrols. It's the same Jarl has to perish so early because it would have been real interesting to see them actually come to blows if things had become difficult later on. On the one hand, we can see why Stir would be annoyed at the apparent nepotism of Mance, but on the other hand, Jarl is actually skilled enough to back it up, making his death all the more of a shame. Here's a quote. So we're between those two, are we? John kept his face carefully blank. How many crows remain within the castles? asked Stir. Five hundred at Castle Black, two hundred at Shadow Tower, perhaps three hundred at Eastwatch. John added three hundred men to the count. If only it were that easy. Importantly, John has retained enough of himself to realise roughly where they are along the wall and to give some semi-false information in the hopes of throwing them off. Unfortunately, Jarl, the leader that John ironically far prefers, calls him out on it and John is forced to lean harder on the whole deserter personality to get out of a potentially dangerous situation. The Sturr's reminder that they will discover the true number soon enough heightens the tension again as we recall that John cannot keep up the pretense forever and eventually the branch will break. From there, John goes on to talk to Egret and we get some interesting quotes. Here's the first. You know nothing, Jon Snow. It went on and on and on. There are hundreds of caves in these hills and deep down they all connect. There's even a way under your wall. Gorn's way. And I think as these might got to some of this, but I'll repeat it for you here. I'm truly obsessed with the idea of Gorn's Way and specifically the idea that these tunnels might link up with the Winterfell crypts in some way. Will the dead travel through them, surprising everyone as they pop up in the middle of Winterfell? Will our last heroes use them as an escape from Winterfell siege of the dead, cutting back behind enemy lines to deal with the problem at the heart of winter, or maybe even connect back to Bran? Even if the tunnels don't connect to the Winterfell, I love the idea of us seeing them used one day. It's just one of those things I am itching to find out about. Like the stars at the beginning of the chapter, the difference in details on the tale of Gorn and Gendal show how similar and yet different people on either side of the wall are. It's also another two sides of the coin situation. Jon sees them as the villain to be beaten back in the defence of the realm, whereas Egret idolises them as folk heroes. This is a real key difference that the two would probably never agree on if they cared to sit down and talk about it, but they find a much more interesting activity to pass the time with in a few minutes. So this kind of one-on-one -on -one impasse, we'll have to wait for a few more chapters yet. And just another note on these tunnels, maybe ghosts could have got through that way. If I'm betting on anyone to sniff their way through, it's a direwolf. And another throwaway line from this little bit here about Gorn and Gendal. This comes from Egret. There's naught to eat in the dark, but flesh, she whispered, biting at his neck. Now, I just want to point this line out because, geez, Egret, maybe just keep that one to yourself, perhaps, considering. But anyway, what follows this unbridgeable division in culture and viewpoint is a physical and emotional union that makes all that other stuff seem like old stories no one cares about anyway. Before they actually get down to the act themselves, there is a very important moment of vulnerability for the both of them. And I should say by now, John and Egret are alone in this kind of cave within a cave, this secret chamber they've found. As John notes, it is one thing to do everything beneath the furs, where passion and touch take over, but it is another to truly present oneself to another, completely bare, and especially at a point where they clearly care about each other. It's a relatable moment in anyone's life as a teenager, but for John, who has long been told to wrap himself in armour, it's especially important. For all we know, this is the first time Egret has made such a sensual gesture as well. Where John's identity is still truly the Black Cloak of the Night's Watch, and Egret the White Fur of the Wildlings, 
Both sides have been forgotten for a little while so they can meet in the middle. As emotional as this moment is, and it really is superb as a, a, a moment in a really short, in a really very short love story, it is made all the more relatable and sweet to us in the kind of awkward but passionate fashion in what occurs next. Again, for all the overall troubles, they are just a pair of horny teens at the end of the day. And as heartwarming as this union is, and again, it's incredibly sweet and endearing that the two end up falling in the water and laughing their way back to passion again afterwards, immediately after all that comes a reminder that they still come from very different backgrounds and have very different, very cemented positions on certain ideas. In this case, it is Egret explaining and defending the practice of girl stealing, something that will never sound right to John. She has this quote as well. Women who bed brothers or fathers offend the gods and are cursed with weak and sickly children even monsters. I think Joffrey, it's probably your turn to stand up there. As well as getting some crass backstory, which is a good way to remind us about him, seeing as he will be returning to the page in a little while, John is this close to being sobered up in how strongly he opposes this particular worldview before hormones come in for a second act and they end up back in the water, leading to this ending of a beautiful passage. Let's not go back to Stir and Jarl. Let's go down inside and join up with Gendel's children. I don't ever want to leave this cave, Jon Snow. Not ever. I think it's worth noting that Egret is as loyal and passionate about Mance's cause and the plight of her people as Jon is about defending the wall and the lands beyond. This exodus really truly means something to Egret, and yet, and yet for the first time the pair come up with the idea of leaving both sides entirely, of taking the third option of it just being them together, alone and happy without any of the responsibilities of their two different sides. This end sentence is incredibly important and a major step for both characters in my opinion and really marks the step over from sexual games to a truly intimate relationship where both of them respectively are nearly enough to tempt the other to abandon the other side. Nearly. As we know, that never happens, but they will always have this cave. We've already discussed the cave being brought up at the moment of Rigot's death, but this moment is so major, so treasured and brilliant, that if we ever see the dreams of a dead John prior to his resurrection, I would absolutely be shocked if his mind doesn't return him to this cave and the singular moment that might be the best of his life. So let's, go, let's change up from bittersweet and loving to awesome and brilliant as we travel back to Essos for Daenerys 3. So a double dose of Daenerys this week and how lucky we are to have this as a finishing chapter for this episode. We had Sam rounding off a chunk a couple of weeks ago and you'd think that's as good as it gets for incredibly important chapters providing a curtain call. Yet here we are in the upper echelon of all A Song of Ice and Fire chapters in terms of their importance in the narrative and their effects upon the world. True, what Daenerys does here isn't quite at the level of discovering there is an army of undead being controlled by ice monsters hell-bent on ending all life, but it is of monumental importance to the living world. While the Whites and others retreat back into the shadows from here on out, for the most part, what Daenerys does here is a mere beginning to an unknowable reach for the sun, a world-changing, reality-altering arc, that will bend an entire continent in its wake. And that is merely to look at the economy and the, and the changed worlds of those in charge. We can't even begin to surmise what this beginning ends up meaning to the thousands of slaves that are freed, the thousands of years of misery that Daenerys is about to undo. She's bounced from free city to free city, she's become a Khaleesi, she's birthed dragons, crossed the red waste, but this is where promise becomes delivery, where Daenerys truly makes her mark on the world. If she retired the next day, she would have cemented her place in the history books already. And this is where she really becomes not just a queen, but that messiah-type figure we spoke about at the beginning. She's a world-changer, a one-of-a-kind who brings untold light to a city built on blood and pain, and it all begins here in this chapter. Yet, for all the flag-waving and cheering Danny rightly deserves in this and her following chapters, there is nothing so simple in the world of Plantos. 
There will be a slaughter in this chapter unseen in this part of the world for over 300 years, and while that may be deserved for nearly all the masters, we could never claim a 100% success rate in terms of guilt and innocence. And as we will find out from Quentin's chapters and reports to Barristan later on, Astapor becomes a hellhole after Daenerys leaves. And there's an argument that that's all deserved considering what they've been up to for untold years, but still. So all of that, that's looking through the large lens of Essos and Slaver's Bay, but clearly this is a huge moment for Daenerys the person as well. It's not just the culmination of all she's learnt in her various forms of being a leader, but a long-awaited pushback against the systems of slavery she's either been disgusted by, or been a victim of, or been a party to, lest we forget. The fact that this is, by far, the largest step she's ever made to actually getting herself to Westeros and on the throne is a happy coincidence. Like with the state of Astapor after this, the roads do not become clear, Danny doesn't become a saint, and her path does not become smooth gold. Still, given all we learned of Astapor in her earlier chapter, and how long we've been waiting for dragon breath, it is hard not to cheer at the end of this chapter. Like we discussed earlier, Daenerys was smart enough to figure out that she needed to buy every single unstudied if her plan was going to work. Something that only occurred to me on this reread in terms of how much she planned this all through before making the decision like I mentioned earlier. Not only is this a practical decision in that her chances of victory go down if some unsullied are left unsold, but a moral one. If Astapor retains just 100 unsullied for themselves, that's 100 unsullied Daenerys has to order her new troops to slaughter, hollowing out her victory and journey from the start. She cannot begin an enlightened campaign of freeing slaves by killing them for something they are being ordered to do. It won't work for Yunkai and Marine, and it won't work for the unsullied she's just freed. It's all in or nothing. First quote for this chapter. Gold in my purse is better than gold in my future. So that's coming from the assembled masters as Daenerys has this little negotiating period at the, uh, at the beginning. And luckily, Daenerys knows exactly how to play these fools because she is no stranger to greed and knows if she dangles the right price in front of them quickly enough, no one will be able to stop. No one will stop to think what danger that could leave them in. Because again, this city and its slaves' masters are so entwined with the idea of how it's always been. Astapor has been this way for thousands of years. What would be the chances of them being present on the one day it all changes? It doesn't even enter their minds that anything could go wrong. In a few minutes, they are going to be cartoon characters with dollar signs in their eyes, just as Danny planned. We can even see from the discussion of the slavers that their one concern isn't for their safety, but that bad reviews in the future might hurt their profit margin. I'll give you this quote. If they fail in the field, they will shame us. And even if we cut 5,000 raw boys tomorrow, it would be 10 years before they are fit for sale. What would we tell the next buyer who comes seeking unsullied? And in fact, what heals over that rift is the promise of profits now instead of later, like that quote says. In classic style, they actually ask for even more than Daenerys is already willing to overpay for, showing that there really is no limits for some people. We can see how eager they are to pull a fast one, Daenerys, when stating that she doesn't have enough at all. Sufficient to be buying one of the thousands, the good master said, with a contemptuous smile. Yet you are paying double, you are saying. Five centuries, then, is all you buy. So Danny was offering above market price for all, yet somehow she's ended up supposedly paying double for a product that she had an agreed upon price two seconds ago. That's the kind of people she's dealing with. If dollar signs in the eye are one thing, then dragon signs in the eyes are quite another. While Daenerys' speaking multiple languages served her well in her last chapter, in terms of getting to know Krasnys, they are put to a much greater use of sensing the tide in this negotiation. She knows when she needs to offer a dragon to tip them over the edge, and she knows that she has them when she does. Incidentally, she also learns Krasnys intended this all along, and just how much they want to fleece her. Once the opening bartering is done and dusted, we come to Daenerys gaining Masande as a friend and ally even with all this tension and bargaining. This is all the better for Daenerys as she gains someone who is going to mean a lot to her going forward. While Masande isn't quite young enough to satisfy Daenerys' mother vibes, she does allow her to feel like an older sister, 
and perhaps heal some of that pain of Eroea. And again, I have to say that name. But that's still a way off yet. And right here and now in this chapter, we get an example of how useful Masande is in the moment, as Daenerys is able to double check all information on the Unsullied and really shore up her plan, now that her source of information is a slave who would definitely know how the Unsullied think. Most importantly, she learns that the masses won't be able to retake the Unsullied with some secret code word or mental backup, and she does it within a clever frame that still keeps her true intentions hidden with this quote. If I did resell them, how would I know that they could not be used against me? Danny asked pointedly. Would they do that? Fight against me? Even do me harm? If their master commanded, they do not question your grace. All the questions have been called from them. They obey. So from the Sande, Daenerys is given the gift of knowing that she will not fail. This is her confirmation right here. I think as he's got to the rest of my notes on Masande, so I will leave Masande there and get to Daenerys back on the ship and Sir Jorah again. And much like the first chapter today, once Daenerys gets back to the ship, we can see that frustration and worry overtake her again. And that leads to the short railside conversation with Sir Jorah, where she gives us this on Viserys. He shouldn't have done that. He wasn't just my brother. He was my king. Why do the gods make kings and queens, if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? So Danny straight up vocalises the question that all of Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings strove to answer. Danny leans towards protection and justice in a very Ned-like fashion, and as we mentioned earlier, relates it back to her own experiences and why she needs to stop others from feeling that way. It's hinting that she already has some underlying confidence that this plan will work, she's already planning on how best to use her new power after all. She isn't dreaming of Joffrey dead beneath her feet, or visiting vengeance upon those who have wronged her. And let us remember, she is a close relation to Ares and Viserys, so this wouldn't have been all that unexpected. Instead, she's striving to make the world better, and we should salute her for it. Unsurprisingly, all of what Danny is trying to convey seems to go right over Jorah's head, because he doesn't seem to be too hot on the protection and justice thing, knowing what that would mean for him personally. To add to that, at the end of Danny's speaking, he touches her hair in an intimate way. I bet he didn't hear a bloody word she said. The thinking of how to be noble and well-meaning translates over into Danny's sleep when she dreams of the only noble Targaryen she knows of. I'll give you this. That night she dreamt that she was Rhaegar, riding to the Trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armoured all in ice, but she bathed them in dragonfire, and they melted away like dew, and turned the Trident into a torrent. Some small part knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened. With the end point of this chapter so mind-blowing, it's easy to forget some of the details within, and this is one such casualty for me. This dream has so many clear comparisons with what we believe to be a possible endgame scenario, it's almost too good to believe George actually included it. The armoured in ice stands out as how the others have been described to us before, and many have said that the final battle, or a part of it, will occur at the Trident, so everything fits here. Most important to me is the end. This is how it was meant to be. I like to think this is a Daenerys confident of her destiny, with all prophecies finally revealed, with her true purpose making her feel as confident, as comfortable as Jaime with sword in hand. In keeping with her thoughts about Rhaegar, a little later on in the chapter she thinks this, I ought to have a banner sewn, she thought, and on it the red three-headed dragon of Targaryen, breathing golden flames, a banner such as Rhaegar might have borne. So mixing that with her dream and the conversation with Jorah, we can clearly see how Danny is thinking of how she should act and is striving to emulate her eldest brother. In terms of forgotten or mismatched moments, I absolutely did not remember that Quaithe reappears in Astapor. I would have guessed it was much later if you'd asked me prior. The questioning of us have to look at Quaithe appearing just after Danny has had a prophetic dream of the ultimate battle. Did she plant the dream? Did the dream attract her? Who knows? In terms of rereading, how much does multiple rereads actually give us about Quaithe over one read? 
Not a lot. We can theorize about glass candles or something like that now after feast, but really we've got no different idea than we do here. Still, it's fun to look and have a guess. What Quaife actually says isn't really the issue. It's nothing Danny hasn't heard before. But if we want to pair it with the dream, we can make some connections, particularly about needing to eventually go north. The trident isn't the north, but we can look at it as the beginning of the way north. So perhaps it will be a case of Danny dealing with the dead at their most southerly point and clearing a way to the heart of the problem back in the north. Regardless, the idea is that Daenerys will find her true destiny in the true issue of the entire series. And perhaps we can take Quaife's arrival at this moment as something similar to when the Watcher appears in the Marvel Universe at moments of high cosmic consequence. Perhaps Quaife knows what Daenerys is about to do will set her on the path to her eventual destiny and is here to make sure she goes through with it. When the day actually comes, we begin with this quote. If I look back, I am lost, Danny told herself the next morning as she entered Astipor through the harbour gate. Aziz mentioned my note on the, the frequency of that phrase being used. But regardless, the quote belies that even with her betrayal in mind, Danny is more than concerned about just how bad this could all turn out as she makes her way through Astapor. She is constantly running the numbers in her head, noting where her best fighters are and keeping her most vulnerable on the inside of their little travelling band to try and keep them safe. Danny even reverts to her Dothraki clothes as opposed to the caffeine she started the capture in, possibly to put her in the mindset of the warrior. There's a real sense of the walls pressing in as Danny moves forward, as more and more of the Astaporti come out to watch. Even the dragons begin to act odd, with Rhaegal trying to fly and Drogon curling up to merely watch. And remembering first-time readers don't know of Danny's trick, the tension really intensifies as the climax arrives. When we get to the Plaza of Punishment, we have this quote for Daenerys. At first glimpse, Danny thought their skin was striped like the sources of the Yogas Nye. Then she rode her silver nearer and saw the raw red flesh beneath the crawling black stripes. Flies, flies and maggots. The rebellious slaves had been peeled like a man might peel an apple in a long curling strip. One man had an arm black with flies from fingers to elbows and red and white beneath. Danny reined in beneath him. What did this one do? He raised a hand against his owner. We have more than enough evidence from both this chapter and the previous that this is a place of unimaginable evil visited down on a specific group of people, as we've discussed a lot so far. But George gives us one more despicable viewing so that what Daenerys is about to do can feel all the more triumphant despite its extreme violence. This is the final nail in the argument that this has to be done, that morally, Danny has to make use of the means available only to her out of everyone in the world, and she has to deliver justice and protection as she is pledged to do. The images of the fly-covered bodies and striped skin, and by the way, isn't it fun to know that they enjoy flaying on both sides of the world, is enough to convince us that this time, justice really does equal fire and blood. Once the official exchange is complete, Danny receives the harpy's fingers, again, quickly thinking of Rhaegar at the same time, and thus begins the sequence I genuinely believe is impossible to read without goosebumps. I'll read you one part here. She stood in her stirrups and raised the harpy's fingers above her head for all the unsullied to see. It is done, she cried at the top of her lungs. You are mine. She gave the mare her heels and galloped along the first rank, holding the fingers high. You are the dragons now. You're brought and paid for. It is done. It is done. You can only imagine what's going on in Danny's soul as she desperately tries to spread the message of ownership as widely as possible by standing up and shouting. After all, it would all go incredibly badly if half the Unsullied realise they've been bought and the other don't. No one is winning in that scenario. But while the focus is pointed at rank upon rank of newly purchased warrior, it has long been one of my favourite lines that the old Grazdan alone realises what is up just too late, making it all the sweeter. Another quote. He will not come, Krasnis said. There is a reason. A dragon is no slave. And Danny swept the lash down as hard as she could across the slaver's face. 
Krasnis screamed and staggered back, the blood running red down his cheeks into his perfumed beard. The harpy's fingers had torn his features half to pieces with one slash, but she did not pause to contemplate the ruin. Drogon, she sang out loudly, sweetly, all her fear forgotten. Dracaris. Krasnis clearly deserves a swipe with the harpy's fingers, so a master can feel the exact pain that has been handed down to countless slaves. But once that symbolism is out the way, we get to one of the most famous lines in the series, one that has gone through and past the show into pop culture fame. And I love the fact that Daenerys sings this, she sings it sweetly. Don't forget, half of this sweet song is fire, and Drogon does not disappoint. But this is just the bell that tells us the fight is starting. Eri and Jiqui, they release Viserion and Rhaegal, and we instantly see how far they can turn the tide of battle, even without their flame, just by causing sheer confusion and chaos. The cavalry particularly can't handle their horses whatsoever in the face of a flaming beast, giving us a taste of what's surely to come later in the Westeros. It's a great note that Ago is shooting down slavers, regardless of their Tokar fringe, again showing us the levels that these people have created are meaningless. And then it's fire everywhere, Dothraki everywhere, and the knockout punch is being wound all the way back. But everything still depends on the Unsullied themselves, and George allows what is one last moment of tension, and also one of catharsis, when clever Grazdan tries to order the Unsullied to save him. Instead, they don't even give him the honour of eye contact as he dies, proving they are exactly what people like Grazdan made them. Danny knows the importance of this moment instantly. No more winding back, this punch is landing. Daenerys tells them they are to attack, and also to save the children and free the slaves, while also visibly destroying the receipt of their purchase. Her message is clear, you are free, make your choice. The Unsullied choose to join her, and the liberation of Slaver's Bay begins in truth, with a now huge, deadly company of Danny's supporters choosing revolution of their own free will. They sing Dracarys back to her, and the song becomes all the more sweet, as the legend of Daenerys Targaryen takes a giant leap forward. And there you go, that is our five chapters for today. Like I say, pretty important chapters, a long old episode, I'm sure you'll agree. I won't keep you too long. Let me quickly say thank you to Aziz and Cher, History of Westeros as always. Thank you all for listening, especially to our patrons, but to all green folk. Very quickly, our five chapters next time will be Sansa 3, Aya 5, John 4, Jamie 4, and Tyrion 4. So we will see you next time for that. Keep your eye out on the Twitter machine for some announcements coming your way soon. And thank you for joining me on the Iowa. See you soon.